I want to focus our thoughts primarily on the second part of the chapter. I don't want to read the whole chapter together. Hebrews, in many ways, somewhat like the book of Deuteronomy, is more a sermon than it is a book. And there is much exhortation the Apostle gives to his readers. So reading chapter 2 together. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. Let me just pause here. haven't done this in a while, but pause for a, a side thought in the reading. But in all the questions, recent decades over the charismatic movement, here's an indication, a confirmation of what we see in Acts and the epistles as well. That those extraordinary gifts, though they weren't only exercised by the apostles, they were connected directly to the apostolic ministry. Remember Simon uh, offered them money, the apostles' money, that he would have the same ability that whosoever he would lay hands on would receive those extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Well here, there's testimony of apostolic witness what was confirmed by those that heard Christ. And God also bore them witness with these signs of the Holy Spirit. But now reading on again, verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Well, amen. We trust again the Lord to prosper the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads together before we consider this portion tonight. Lord, we pause mindful that we are constantly in your presence, but we pause corporately to acknowledge your presence, to approach your throne of grace and ask that you might draw near to us. Lord, even already in the reading of this exhortation, the reading of these amazing words that you will draw near to us, that you by your Spirit will minister Christ to us. Lord, we come tonight to emblems. We do not come to a priest or to a sacrifice. We come to that which is to draw us out in peculiar ways to remember the finished work of our Lord and Savior. And so we ask that by your Spirit you will do that very thing for us. Help us. Help us in these very moments to remember Christ. We pray these things in his worthy and matchless name. Amen. I want to come tonight to what I trust are familiar words to many souls gathered here. This portion of Scripture has for many years been very precious to me. It's a portion I took occasion, a full lecture really, this first trimester of the year for the students. If you go to the first three chapters of Genesis, you see the account of creation. You see the place that man was to occupy in that created order. Obviously Adam created in the image of God. But that somewhat mysterious probationary period, how long was it? God doesn't record it. Evidently it was not long until a fallen being approached Adam. But we see there the dominion that man was to have. To be as God's regent. He was only made for a little while to be lower than the angels, but ultimately to be put above them. To be at the right hand of God. And it is this that David reflects upon in the 8th Psalm. As he looks at creation, he marvels at it. Our brother Tomassian spoke last Lord's Day evening about portions of Scripture that there's a, a view of them that seems entrenched in the mind and it's amazing that we could go there. Well, Psalm 8 is one of those to me. Maybe it's because it was entrenched in my mind. When I consider 
the works of thy hands, the sun, moon, and stars which thou hast made. All this wondrous creation. What is man that thou art mindful of him? I thought, yeah, hey, we're a little speck in this. But that's not what the psalm's about at all. That man is the focal point of the whole thing. Man is the one part of creation that was made in the image of God. And he's the one part, that place in creation that was to have dominion over the rest, to reflect God's glory to the rest. And of course, it's this psalm that the writer of Hebrews is meditating on here. He draws our attention to the fact that David, the psalmist, saw this place for man. And he even says in verse 5, Unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, wherever we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And then he has to come to the sad conclusion. We see not. We see not yet all things put under him. How could they be? It is man that has brought the curse upon this creation. But the story doesn't end there. He says, but we see Jesus. And this Jesus whom he has said in the previous chapter, is the creator and sustainer of all things. He was made for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death. I want tonight, in looking at the closing portion of this chapter, to just put three points of reference really before you. I'm going to break rules of homiletics. We're told all of your main thoughts should be proportional to each other. Well, maybe, but probably not. The first thought I put before you this evening and perhaps where we'll focus the most, the marvel of his condescension. I was reading with our brother Billy yesterday. I'm just taken to the phrase in the closing portion of verse 11. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. You ever just reading the scriptures have the Spirit of God slam on the brake pedal as it were? How many times in the privacy of our own hearts or if we were to go around the room and call for testimonies, how many times would we have to confess that we were ashamed of him. That we shrunk away 
from owning His name. When we neglected a golden opportunity to let someone know we belong to this Jesus. He's perfect. And we at times are ashamed of Him. We are children of wrath. Utterly depraved. Ruined by the fall. And He is not ashamed to call us brethren. Of course, it's only in the gospel, which is the power of God and the salvation, that this marvelous condescension is displayed. We see in this the union of Christ and His people so wonderfully put in verse by Chris Anderson in that hymn. You know, we free peas take credit for that hymn because it was in Mike Barrett's Minor Prophets class in the lecture on Zechariah 3 that those light bulbs came on. The union of Christ and His people. We're spoken later here as being His children. Every point, every description of our connection to Him is marvelous. But I say it's one of those times at least the Spirit really put the brakes on in my reading. That He would not be ashamed of us. The marvel of His condescension. But our second thought is the merit of His sufferings. If you see throughout this portion, it is that that's in view. Verse 17 speaks about Him making reconciliation, really propitiation, that removal of wrath for His people. It's not perhaps our place for this, but I've been in it recently with the students. Verse 9 is one of those problem passages for the Reformed faith that we are called upon at least to wrestle with by our non-reformed brethren, that He, Jesus, would, by the grace of God, taste death for every man. We look through this portion and other problem passages too. The answer is ready at hand. There's a people spoken of here. A people given unto Christ. A people described as them that are sanctified, as we'll see in a moment. All these descriptions are are coextensive. They're, They're talking about the same body of people. Those that are reconciled. Those 
that are sanctified. It is these for whom he tasted death, one for all. But I don't want to get us lost and distracted in debate. If you ever lose the gospel warmth of the doctrines of grace, it's time to stop arguing about them with somebody else and start meditating upon them privately. That the warmth of them comes back to your own soul. But here, this one, it pleased God to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That he would bear the shame. That he would be made a curse for us. And so it is here we see that remarkable union. I said we come back to that phrase from verse 11. Both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. I think this is one of those occasions in Scripture where the word sanctified or sanctifies is not speaking about that way that we most often use the term. That process of growth in grace the Christian life in between our conversion, our justification, and our glorification. There's some that see it here, and that's not a problem. But to me, the, particularly the, the Old Testament context of Hebrews, something that's sanctified is simply something that's set apart. The furniture for the tabernacle was sanctified. It was set apart. It wasn't commonly used here are people that are sanctified here are people that are set apart how are they set apart they're set apart by being taken out of the first Adam by taken away and separated from their own sins and placed in Jesus. These sanctified ones, the ones that the Father gave unto Him before the foundation of the world, the ones He in that council of redemption agreed with the Father in Spirit that He would redeem And as we come tonight, and we even rejoice at the fact that He's not ashamed of us, that He's bringing us to glory. We're among those many sons. His heart, His motive, if you will, that marvel of His willingness the atonement didn't, remember, bring down the love. The atonement, part of its design and work wasn't to make God willing. 
God was, from before the foundation of the world, willing. God was, from before the foundation of the world, desirous of saving. But his own law could not be set aside. I'm going to beg your patience with repetition here. But I was sharing with a couple of the men actually this week some of my experience in reading Hugh Martin's wonderful little work on the atonement. Martin focuses primarily in that work on the atonement from the perspective of the priestly work of Christ. But he speaks in one chapter as I have shared before, about God's sovereignty reaching above His law. And I saw the opening heading and introductory paragraph to that chapter and I backed off. I'm not going to agree with Him here. And of course, I'm coming out of a context of teaching that God's law is mutable. That God's law can change from Say from the Old Testament to the New, no big deal. If God changes it, it can be changed, no big deal. No, God's law can't be changed. His law had to be honored. And so even given that God was desirous and willing to save, He couldn't set aside the law. Well, Hugh Martin, how is it then that his sovereignty ex- exercised above his law? Well, it is in this way. We've looked at this recently in Romans 7. The law has dominion over us. Here is God's perfect standard of holiness. Here is God's prerequisite for fellowship and communion with Himself. And we took that which was, as Paul says, ordained to life and we transgressed it. And sin, which is the transgression of that law, the wages of sin is death. And so according to law, God is shut up to the conclusion Death to the sinner. The penalty of the broken law to the transgressor. But God sovereignly, in a sphere not contradicting His law, not setting aside His law, but in a realm of pure, Divine sovereignty exercises His will above His law and says, I am not shut up to this conclusion. Death to the sinner. I will give another representative. I will place a people in another man. And I will deal with them there. 
Martin's words. Here's gospel thinking. No law demanded this. No law suggested this. No law objects to this. But the law had to be honored. And so we remember tonight the suffering, the bearing of the penalty that brings many sons to glory. The last thought I put before you, and here's where I break those rules of homiletics. I just really suggest it. The mercy of his sympathy. The last verse of the passage, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he's able to succor them that are tempted. Well, here's where we can get into that sanctification that is the process in our pilgrim journey. And an aspect of his work, you could see that the focus, the heart of it all in justifying us and having that double imputation of his fulfillment of the righteous demands of the law in our place, his bearing of the penalty of our transgressions of the law in our place. But he lived here. The second man fulfilled that first covenant in a fallen, cursed environment where there were no encouragements toward God. The first man broke it in Eden. But so he now feels, he knows the feeling of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like as we are. He was in all points tempted beyond the way we are. And so here, we have a sympathetic high priest. He knows our frame. And as we would struggle and labor, he's able to help. Let us rest upon that. If he has endured all that was required in our justification, how can we not expect him as our intercessor and the giver of his Holy Spirit to help us in our sanctification? But as we have said, or or in the process of saying in our studies in Romans, it isn't from a legal frame. The law is a map. It's not the car. But in the giving of His Spirit to help, in the Spirit's making Christ known more and more to us, how are we 
by his sympathy with us. As we come tonight, think of everything that is involved in the fact that he's not ashamed to call you his brother. What grace. I want to ask you to turn tonight in the hymn supplement 